0: In our sermon series, Through the Last Week of Jesus' Life, uh, this takes us to Friday. Uh, Many of us call it Good Friday for lots of good reasons. Uh, Lots of good things happened on Good Friday, but as a whole, at the time, it seemed awful. It was tragic. It was terrible. And I was reminded in my reflection on this a few years ago in my previous ministry at Galesburg, a few of us got together some monologues and uh, pre-recorded did some videos uh, just reflecting on the thoughts of the disciples, of those that might have been around Jesus at the time of Friday. And I want to share with you one of those videos. My good friend Adam Tromsness did one, a first-person narrative on Peter after his denial. So take a look at Adam's portrayal of Peter.
1: They say the rooster's crow is God's wake-up call. It certainly was for me. I mean the whole events of that night are just, it's just a blur. I mean at one point we're, we're eating and Jesus is washing our feet and then we go outside and, and I can tell that Jesus is anxious and he goes out into the garden to pray and he, he asked me to keep watch. and shame to say it, but I fell asleep. I mean, I I was exhausted and just eating a big meal and and honestly, I didn't think that we were in any danger. So I did. I I, I just fell asleep. And when I woke up, there was all this commotion. There was Judas and there were guards and and Judas goes up to Jesus and just plants a kiss on it. And immediately the guards, start to, to surround Jesus and I felt like I had to do something. So I jumped up and I grabbed my sword and I went up to one of the guards and, and I cut his ear off. And that, that wasn't the right thing to do. I mean, I'm a fisherman, I'm not a swordsman, but I, I was just, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I was scared. The, the guards, they took Jesus away. And as I was standing there, I began to think about words that I had just said to Jesus just hours before that. I had looked at Jesus, I looked at him right in the eyes, and I said, Even if everybody else denies you, I never will. So I decide that I need to follow Jesus. So I follow him, and they take him to the high priest's house, and the house is surrounded with all these people. And I get to the door, and it's crowded. And I'm trying to get in the door, and this girl, she comes up to me, and she points at me, and she says, you were with that man. You were with the man who calls himself the Son of God. As soon as she finished saying that, people in the crowd started whispering. They started pointing at me. I just became overwhelmed with fear. I didn't know I wanted it to stop. So I I tried to quiet the girl. No, it wasn't me, I said. But she said again, you were with that man. I said, no, I've never seen that man, and I quickly went into the courtyard. I approached the fire, and I was trying to, trying to warm up, and I looked up, and there was one of the guards, and I recognized him from the garden. At the same time, he recognized me as well. You were with that man. You were with Jesus in the garden. No, it wasn't me, I said. It must be someone who looks like me but he said again, no, it was you. I became scared and I said, no, I don't know that man. It was easier the second time to deny him. I had to get away. I was just so scared. And as I walked away, I was approached by another man who looked at me and said, you were with Jesus. You are one of his disciples. I can tell from your accent. No, it's not me, I said. Somebody maybe who looks like me, but it's not me. I do not know that man. Leave me alone. And just as I had finished saying these words, I heard the rooster crow. And when I heard that, I looked up and I saw Jesus. He was looking at me. He was looking at me right in my eyes and and he knew. And I said even if everyone else denies I never will. What a joke. What would you do? I ran away and they killed him. They crucified
0: Jesus. I think as individuals, we can get so wrapped up in our own failures when it comes to responding to Jesus. We, we can get so shamed and, and accused in our own hearts about how we've messed it up. But for Peter, um, it led to restoration, and we see that later on in, in John 20 and 21. And so in the midst of Good Friday, I want us not to be uh, focused on our own self. And our own failures and our own struggles necessarily, but on Jesus. And if you had just a few words to say, if you had a few phrases that you could put together, and, and you know, you know, you only had a certain amount of time to live, what were your last words? What would your last words be? How would you choose them? Who would you say them to? I would propose to you, and as many others have have, that Jesus phrased his last few words from Psalm 22. And I want to take a look at this psalm in the context of the cross on that Friday and maybe even help us to pray a prayer of lament. Many of the psalms were prayers of lament. They, um, they just were grief-stricken prayers. God, where are you? I don't, he- I don't know that you're hearing me. I'm stuck in the valley, I'm stuck in the mud. I mean, all over the Psalms, you hear this kind of language. But invariably, it turns at some point and proclaims the faithfulness and goodness and love of God. This Psalm does that too. But Jesus uses these words on the cross. And I think if we can learn the pattern of lament, if we can see Jesus using this, even in the midst of his own death, We can come away from this crisis with a tool, a practice, and some courage to face the next challenge. So let me just take us through this, but let me pray first. God, thank you for your word that it speaks to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides us. And thank you for Jesus, so intentional, so on mission, even as he was suffering. He quoted scripture. He knew it by heart. And he knew what he was communicating, what he fulfilled. Thank you for being with us in each of our own homes, wherever we are, that this kind of communication, although it's not the best for us, it is helpful. In in Jesus' name, amen. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 22. All right, we're going to start there. And I'm going to use my handy-dandy whiteboard to help us Navigate this psalm. And when, when I read through this, I want you to listen for words from the cross. I want you to look for images from the crucifixion and overlap these two realities, the psalm writer and the cross of Christ. The first one is relatively easy because Jesus quotes this verse verbatim. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Ever been there? Ever feel like your prayers go nowhere, that you're not being heard? This is where it begins. This is the cry. From verse 1. My God, my God. Where are you? Where have you gone? The lament begins with a cry. A proclamation an address. I'm in trouble. And I need you. But I don't know where you are. But it doesn't take the psalm writer very long. And sometimes, if we're honest, it doesn't take us very long either. To go from a cry to a confidence Watch what he does in verses 3 through 5. Yet, he says, You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. Look, when everything else is falling apart, and you don't even know if God is listening, what you can do is what the psalm writer does. It goes into memory mode. Looking back on the faithfulness of God. Looking back in scripture to see where God acted miraculously, where he spoke kindly, where he loved generously. And you can see this in your own life. If you're honest, if you've lived long enough, you've seen God. You've seen him act in your life on your behalf. And when the present seems hopeless, you can recall and gain confidence from the past. And what God has done. But yet reality just smacks you upside the head. And it doesn't take long. Sometimes, even in the midst of a confidence in God, in his track record, to go right back down to uttering a complaint. Look at verse 6-8. to He says, But I am a worm and not a man. He doesn't even feel like a human anymore scorned by mankind, despised by the people. And here's where you start seeing pictures of the cross. Verse 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him. You ever wonder if the Pharisees knew that they were quoting Psalm 22 when they were mocking Jesus while he was on the cross? That's exactly what they said in Matthew twenty-seven, forty-one and following. They were telling him, Let the Lord rescue you if he delights in you. This is the the complaint of the psalm writer. And yet Verse 9, he has to go back and say, well. Uh, There is a confidence here. I still need to understand that what he says here, yet you, Lord, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You've been my God. So once again, I'm reminded from the time I was born from when I didn't even... I, I didn't know anything. God knew me. And he had me in his arms. He's rescued me time and again. He's taken care of me. From the time I was born. And so, verse 11, he has a request. And the request is for God to come close. Listen to what he says in Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Trouble is near. And there doesn't seem like sometimes there's much help out there, although we know we're working on this, but our ultimate salvation is not in science, and and it's, it's not in the health department, it's not in the government. It is on the Lord, and the Lord uses all these things to help right the wrongs in the world, because a lot of God's people are at the helm A lot of God's people are working toward a resolve for this crisis, but our salvation comes from the Lord, and we cry out to him first and foremost. And so this request he gives, trouble is near, there's none to help, and he begins to outline the trouble. This is a longer section, and he just goes right back down into a bit of complaint. Look at verses 12 to 18. Many bulls encompass me, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melted within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and they've pierced my hands and feet." Listen for the cross here. "...I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat at me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." How much more specific can this get, a thousand years before Christ was crucified? The psalm writer, David, prophesies. And this is exactly what happened. At the foot of the cross, the soldiers begin to bargain and barter for the clothing of Jesus. And they divide his garments among them. And they find his tunic. And it is woven from top to bottom. It's one piece. And they said, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots to see who will get it. And they gambled for his clothes. And so we see the trouble we see the complaint we see the uh, what you hear the animal imagery the just the savagery that's going on tearing him limb from limb and so he goes from the complaint to a request again he has another request and this is verse 19 to 21 listen to what he requests Again, it's about proximity. It's about God coming close. You, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So, from here, he turns a corner and he begins to give God a bit of motivation. And this isn't abnormal for for prayers of the Bible to draw upon what we know of God. Listen to 22 to 24 here. And this is what the psalm writer says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. He has heard when he cried out to him. Do you hear the promise there? A lot of people think that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that that, the, that God turned his face away from Jesus. I don't buy that. I, I wrote about it. I quoted some other writer in, in a Facebook post that I put up. You can read that for yourself. But the psalm writer here has no thinking that God has entirely left him completely alone, and I don't think Jesus did either. The Lord has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. God has not turned away. Nor will he ever forsake us. He promised that. He does hear us when we cry out to him. He he continues, verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And then he begins to have another, another paragraph or two of confidence. He's ramping up. He's finishing up here. Starting in verse 27 to 29. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Don't forget that. He rules over the nations. And all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. That's us. Every one of us is going to die someday. And before him we all bow. Either here, when we can and choose to, or we will, when all will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But then, that's because we'll be seeing his glory. And those that did not do that here will be too late for them. The message at the end. The proclamation at the end. The last two verses are of special interest. They are a proclamation. This psalm began in despair, but it ends in victory. Don't miss this. He says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. We are messengers to a next generation, to a people yet unborn. They will look back and they will see how this generation handled, not just this crisis, but the 21st century in general. How did we handle this? We get to proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. What are we proclaiming? The last phrase in this last verse is one word in the Hebrew that he has done it. It is accomplished. It's done. The one word in Hebrew that finishes this song corresponds to the one word in Greek that Jesus cried out at the end of his crucifixion. It is finished. Do you see the bookends of the crucifixion? He starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he finishes with, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. It's over. This cry of lament ends in victory. Not just Christ's victory, our victory. Which is why we get good out of Good Friday. In the midst of some pretty horrible circumstances that were yet to be seen by the disciples, we get the opportunity and the privilege of seeing it from this side of history. And we get the privilege of taking and remembering this event in the bread and the cup, in the body and the blood of the Lord, to remember Him, to remember the despair, remember the victory that it has accomplished. And so grab your communion stuff, gather your family if you've got any right right there around you, and let's take the bread and remember the body broken the flesh just mangled on that cross, that this is given for us, the body of Christ given for you. We remember the blood that was shed, the blood of the atonement, the forgiveness. Jesus said it was a new agreement between God and people. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of him. God, thank you that we can remember you. We can not just remember, but we can experience. Our imaginations can take us there, and that our minds can process, our emotions can perceive, and that we can be fully assured and know, not only are you in control, but you're very present. You're actively present in our own homes, in our own circumstances, and even in the loss that uh, some of us are experiencing. And for some, it's, it's, just, it's merely an inconvenience that's turned out to be something that opportunity has. And for others, it's a great tragedy that there is a great amount of loss through life, through sickness, through a business loss. And so I thank you that you are over all of it and that you're sovereign over all things. And we thank you for your promise that you work together all things for the good of those who love you, and are called according to your purpose.
1: In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Listen, I want to give you a little something to take with you. To learn how to pray a lament. I'm always trying to figure out how best I, how I could better pray. And I go to the Psalms a lot to pray. And if I can just take a couple more minutes of, of time to teach. There's Five pieces of a lament. I would encourage you to try this. Grab a journal, grab a piece of paper. The first thing about a lament is that it has an address. It's an opening line. It's the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how you open your prayer. It may not be all that pretty, it may be kind of even... it almost might seem rude but it's honest. And so you open your prayer with an address toward God. And the second part is, you outline your complaint. It's okay to tell God what's going on and how you feel about it. The scriptures are full of people who have done this, and God has big shoulders, and He can handle it. At least you're talking to Him about it. So, make your address, outline your complaint, write this out, write out how you feel, what's going on, and even some of the details. But don't just leave it there. The third part of a lament is a request. I think a lot of us have this down and we can complain really well, but then we just leave it at that. We either get guilty about complaining at God and so we quit, or we just get mad in a huff and and we stop talking to God altogether. But what what is it that you want Him to do about it? I mean, really, just make a request. Look at the request made in verse 11 of Psalm 22. Look at the request made in verse 19. What kind of request would you make of the Lord, given your address and your complaint? And then draw upon what you know about the Lord, what you've seen in the character of Jesus, and give yourself some motivation for obedience. Maybe even give God some motives based on his character, his track record. And what that does is it helps you to see if your complaint and your address is in line with something that God wants to do. So make your request, line yourself in with the character and and quality of God and motivate him to answer a prayer and end in confidence. Confidence that he's heard you. Confidence that he's acting on your behalf for your good. Confidence that you may not get the answer that you want based on your first set of gripes. But it could be just as simple as what Job said in his book. He said, though he slay me, still I will trust in him. Whatever happens, even if I'm dead at the end, I will still trust in the Lord. It could be as simple as that. That could be your confidence. But it could be a lot of other things too. In the end, your lament will have narrowed your focus so that God is all that matters and your life is in His hands. This is where your confidence lies. I pray that this has been a great experience for your family. I know this isn't the way we want to do church right now. But my prayer has been that whatever your family situation looks like, even if it's just you in your own home alone. If you have little kids at home and you find it hard to wrangle them around to get their attention, that you have been more of a spiritual leader in your own self and in your with your with your spouse or with your kids, that this has been forcing us out of our comfort zone to do the spiritual hard work in our own homes, so that we're strengthened as a church to build better families. Let's proclaim some victory in Friday. Thanks for your time. God bless.